0: Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 to 34. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open up to page 904. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat. And drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, good morning, everybody. There's a lot going on, and let's continue to keep in prayer for our church and for our nation and for the world. And before we get into the message today, let's start with a prayer. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand that understanding we may believe and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, um, this morning we return to the first uh, letter to the church in Corinth, and in this 15th chapter, Paul is addressing the Corinthians on the resurrection. Uh, He's telling his readers that they are Christian because they believe in the resurrection. Christ lived and died in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried and then raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, those that have faith will also follow him in the resurrection. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, death will not be your end. But when you die, you will be raised again in Christ, to Christ, for Christ. This will be important to remember because this brief passage in this chapter is a most unusual and deeply puzzling section, and in particular this first verse. So I'm just going to get right into it. In verse 29 it says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized? On behalf of the dead, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? What does this mean? First, the passage starts with the word otherwise. Otherwise from what? The section before. Otherwise from the section before. And the section before, this one talks about Christ rising from the dead and how we are beneficiaries of Christ's life, death, and resurrection— So we, as beneficiaries of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we are assured life, death, and resurrection. Otherwise, then what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? You know, there are many interpretations on what baptized on behalf of the dead could mean. Uh, There is no explanation of this particular phrase, and this is the only time in the Bible that this concept comes up, on baptism on behalf of the dead. However, uh, we can ascertain confidently certain things, and number one is the tone of the text. So this is not an approval of baptism on behalf of the dead. And it's not a disapproval on behalf of the, baptiz- on, on the baptism on behalf of the dead. It's a pretty much neutral statement. So even though this can be a very confusing and puzzling statement or question, Paul is posing, we know, at least two things. It's connected, number one, because the otherwise is connected to the passage before, that we are assured resurrection in Christ, to Christ, and for Christ and number two, Paul isn't condemning or affirming this practice of baptizing on behalf of the dead. Now, noting these two things, I don't think it can mean vicarious baptism. Vicarious baptism is when you baptize people or you baptize dead people in hopes that they will get into heaven posthumously. Baptism doesn't mean you get into heaven and if the Corinthians believe that, I would be very surprised Paul wouldn't immediately correct this error. Baptism doesn't get you into heaven. This, of course, isn't supposed to be taken as baptism then doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. It matters so much that it is part of Jesus' great commission— Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So how do you make disciples? How do you obey Jesus in the Great Commission? The very first thing that Jesus mentions is baptism. So baptism and then teach. When Peter at Pentecost stood and gave a sermon to the listeners, and they heard the sermon. They were cut to the heart, and they asked Peter, what shall we do? And how did he respond? He said, repent and be baptized. Baptism was the key to joining the fold. Sure, just because you're baptized doesn't mean that you're a Christian, but a Christian gets baptized. This is why we also baptized children not only do we believe that the covenant is covenant is extended to our children when we believe like it says in 1 corinthians 7 14 but the baptizing comes before the teaching in the great commission jesus goes when you make disciples baptizing them and then teaching them so again baptism does not make you a christian but a christian gets baptized and going back to vicarious baptism then, or getting baptized on behalf of someone else, like the dead, this is what the Mormons do, that is found nowhere in the Bible. If this was happening, and even if he were to you know, talk about the practice without prescribing it, I would be hard-pressed to think that Paul would not address such heretical behavior. There are many more strange and complex views, but among the more plausible ones, some see it as a practice that living Christians exercised for the sake of deceased believers to show that they had a yearning for them, assuring their connection and participation with them in the resurrection. However, I don't think Paul is being—so that's a very, very complex, and it's a hard concept to grab, even if when I said it, some of you might be like, well— That's over my head. But I don't think Paul in this verse is being obscure or oblique. Again, I wanted to say all this to tell you that this particular verse, this first verse that we read, is one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture. There are hundreds of views, perhaps, and I want to help you get through it. I'm not going to give the dozens of different views that I've come across. I think we can safely narrow it down. And we've eliminated vicarious baptisms that the Mormons hold on to. Marcion, the Gnostic heretic in the ancient world, also believed in that. So he believed that you could baptize the dead, and then maybe after they're dead they could go to heaven. But uh, we've established that the act of baptism does not save you. The act of baptism itself does not save you. Baptism on behalf of the dead. So, what does that mean? And what does that specifically have to do with the resurrection? And so, the word that we read on behalf of is from the Greek word huper. It does mean for the sake of. And the picture that you would see if you heard the word huper is kind of something like above you, for instance if an ambassador goes on behalf of his king or master, then that person is above you. And so this is trying to describe something that is above you. Something like, you know, you have drive and then you have hyperdrive. And then if you know what I'm talking about, then you're a Star Wars nerd. But so it just means that there is something above. It is trying to describe something like that. And if we take it in its broad meaning, who pair, it can even mean above and because. It's because of the dead you get baptized. Now, the meaning then is straightforward and simple, but it is deep. Because of someone who died before you, their testimony and your desire to be with them. The hope of reunion with them, that would be a key motivator in your baptism. And some of you may be like, huh? But let's explore this. The Corinthians were enveloped in Greek thought. It's actually not something that we're unfamiliar with. Uh, I recently saw a movie with my wife, and um, it referenced a very popular Greek myth. And, well, the popular Greek myth was um, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, and in that movie, uh, the protagonist pronounces it Eurydice, which is not right. It's Eurydice. But Orpheus and Eurydice, they were the quintessential perfect couple. They were the absolute couple that everybody wanted to be like. They truly loved each other. It was beautiful. And they got married, but as the Greek myth goes on, that happiness was not meant to last forever. And so Eurydice dies, and Orpheus is stricken with grief. So he goes all the way down to Hades to plead for his wife back. And Hades would give back Eurydice to Orpheus, but only under one condition. She would follow him out of the underworld to the upper world, right? She would follow him out of the underworld, but he could not look back. He couldn't look back until they both came out to the light or the upper world. If he did, he would lose her forever. Orpheus was delighted, right? This was so simple, or so he thought. So there was a long journey back up. And then in his journey back up, he can't look back. so he his mind starts to get riddled with fears and doubts. What if she stopped following me? What if the gods were just playing a trick on him? He could barely hold on. But as soon as he stepped, that first step, out into the upper world, out into the land of the, the living, he immediately turned around to see if she was still there. But the deal was that they both had to go to the upper world. So she had not come out yet. And then you would see her soul being sucked all the way back into Hades forever. There are many versions of this story, but this particular record that I just told you about dates back to 8 A.D., 8 AD. So this would have been a popular story of the time that this letter to the Corinthians was written. You know, people long to be with those that they love, and death does not abate that longing. This includes the Christian who longs to be with the one that left to be with the Lord before they did. But the influence of dead people whose faith has influenced us, that's a real thing. The longing to reunite with them is also a real thing. Without the faith of my grandfather, I would not be here. I still remember seeing him as a child when I would peer into his room as a kid when he would be kneeling and praying. In Hebrews 10.39, It says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the writer of Hebrews here is exhorting the reader then, if you have faith, don't give up, keep up the faith, persevere to the end. He's saying that. And how does he qualify that? How does he do that? He says in the very next verse, which is chapter 11, in the very next chapter and verse, he goes on to remind his readers that the faith of the people that came before them are the people that you should look at. Dead people whose faith impacted ours in such a great way. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and the list goes on. And then in verse 13 of chapter 11, it says, these all died in faith. And then he continues to list more, Moses, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and on. And then in verse 35, it says, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. See, these people were looking to rise again to a better life. All the people of faith that died, they were looking to obtain a resurrection to a better life. This is the picture that the scriptures use to encourage the believer. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who didn't receive the things that they were promised, but they saw them and greeted them from afar. And in the end of that chapter, you know why? It was because of us. It was because of us. So that we could be engrafted, they had to wait. If the world ended, even... 20, 30 years ago, before, you guys wouldn't have been born. You would not have been engrafted. But because of us, they would wait. And then it says, Therefore, therefore, throw every weight that would hinder you aside. Run this race, looking to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Aren't you so thankful for the people, for those of faith that went before you? Aren't you so grateful for them? You are the beneficiary of their faith and toil. And all the way of all those people, all the way to the pinnacle of that, stands Christ, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's why In Christian funerals and memorials, there is hope. This hope isn't founded in wishful thinking. It's rooted in something substantive, but it's rooted in Christ's life, Christ's death, and Christ's resurrection. It's because of Christ that those that have faith in Him, those that are called to Him, also obtain this great Reward This great cloud of witnesses then that we are surrounded by should propel us to continue to persevere. And this is my hope and prayer for our brothers and sisters here across the world, especially in North Korea, in China, and now most recently in Afghanistan. Don't stop. Don't give up. Run the race. verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? This question invariably tied to the previous one then shows us that if there is no resurrection, why would the testimony of those that went before us affect us at all? If there is no resurrection also, why would we put ourselves in danger? Why in the world would someone in Afghanistan say that they are a Christian only to have your daughters raped and taken, your sons tortured and murdered before they eventually take yours? These are the testimonies of those that have gone before us but are, are even now happening across the world. As heartbreaking as some of these stories are, Yet there is hope for those that have placed their faith in Jesus. I will be reunited with my brothers and sisters, and it doesn't depend on whether or not I can keep from looking back into the underworld, but it is dependent on the perfect work of Jesus Christ. You know, when David, King David, committed adultery with Bathsheba. She became pregnant with a child and that child would die and the child would get sick and it was about to die. So David wouldn't eat. He wouldn't sleep. He wouldn't do anything for seven days. He just lied face down on the floor because he was pleading for his son's life. He was fasting and praying. No one could get him up from the floor no one. And on the seventh day when the baby died, his servants were so afraid to tell him. So they started, to whispering, they started to whisper, and they thought, if he was this extreme while the baby was alive, what will happen if he finds out that the baby is dead? And David noticed the whispering of his servants, and he goes, is the baby dead? And they told him, yeah, the baby was dead. Then David got up, he washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, goes into the Lord's house, and he worships God. After that, he gets something to eat. His servants were so confused. They asked him, why are you doing this? While the baby was alive and it was sick, you fasted and you prayed, you couldn't get off the floor for seven days, and now that the baby is dead, you get up and just eat? And he responded this way in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He said, David said this, While the baby was still alive, I fasted and I cried. I thought, who knows? Maybe the Lord will feel sorry for me and let the baby live. But now that the baby is dead, why should I fast? I can't bring him back to life. And then he says this, Someday I will go to him, but he cannot come back to me. Contrast this with Absalom. Absalom is another one of David's sons, and David's uh, son Absalom would act in evil, he wouldn't act in faith, he would revolt against David, his father, he would kill his men, he would even sleep with his, David's concubines, and he would go on and try to kill and overthrow David. You know, one day Absalom was riding his mule And his head would get stuck under some thick branches of an oak tree, the Bible would say. And then one of David's men would take three spears and plunge it into Absalom's heart. And when David found out, nothing, nothing could console David. The whole nation heard him cry, My son Absalom, my son Absalom, I wish I had died and not you Absalom, my son, my son. He was inconsolable. You know why? Because he knew that he would never see him again. A verse that I frequently read during memorials is uh, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13, where it says, "But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope." You see, for us Christians, there will be a reunion for those that are in Christ. This has always been the incentive for people to put their trust in Christ. Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. And he showed us by being the first fruits of the resurrection. When the two suicide bombers killed themselves in Kabul airport, taking 13 U.S. servicemen Members, excuse me, uh, and over a hundred other lives. The images and videos that we saw of the aftermath were corpses lying face down in that sewage drain. Just bodies and corpses strewn and laid across the floor. You know what people did after that? They went right back to the walls right next to the corpses pleading for the u.s government to open those doors because there's no other way there's no other way if you don't open the doors there's no other way there's no other way is my point point. and then paul says this in verse 31 i protest brothers By my pride in you, which I have in Christ our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul is asking, why would I do this if there is no resurrection? Why would anyone live their entire life in danger, every single day. And it's not just sometimes, it was every day for Paul. Paul would frequently make remarks about being a soldier, a warrior, a runner, a fighter, a boxer, a wrestler. And I think it's because he just, it's not just because he knew about the games, like the Olympic games, but he also knew about the discipline involved. Why is he fighting these beasts? at Ephesus. It was probably a metaphor referencing back to the time where the people of Ephesus rioted and formed a mob just to kill him. These are metaphors that we even use today, like you're beasting it, right? But we've recently seen riots targeting stores and businesses. But imagine a whole city rioting, a whole city rioting, and they're coming after you. Paul is saying, why would I do that? If there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This was a popular saying, and probably even said now, if not acted on in sentiment. If there is no resurrection, no consequences for your actions later... Why should anyone be prohibited from gratifying their desires? If death is the end of it all, and this is the only life you will live, then what's stopping you from eating and drinking and fulfilling your every carnal desire? This sentiment has taken over our country and nation, and now we want to define these things as Rights, quote-unquote rights, things that are inherent. So what are rights? Rights are inherent to your being. That means they belong exclusively to you. So we want to define these things as rights, like who you could sleep with, when you could have your baby killed. And without the resurrection, yes, Paul is arguing then, LGBTQ, abortion, all these things are fair play because tomorrow you die. If there is no resurrection, everything you should do should be for hedonistic egoism. Everything should be solely for self-gratification. All your sacrifices, your nobility, your integrity, all, they're all foolishness. Unless it's a pseudo-sacrifice, a pseudo-nobility, a pseudo-integrity, it's like a, a trick to fool those that are slow-witted, right? So that you could fill your own desires and only, ultimately, only your desires. So love isn't about the other. That wouldn't make any sense. You should suck the life out of everything you can because this is all there is. The ancient Greek historian would visit countries, and Herodotus, he would visit countries around the world And this is what he wrote on the account of when he visited Egypt. He would know how they would hunt and how they would eat. He would make note that they would eat cornbread, right? And they would dry. They wouldn't cook the fish. They would dry the fish in the sun and then eat that eat fish that way. And then he says this: In the entertainments of the rich among them, when they have finished eating, a man bears round a wooden figure. Of a dead body in a coffin, made as like the reality as may be both by painting and carving and measuring about a cubit or two cubits each way, and he shows to each of those who are drinking together, saying, When thou lookest upon this, drink and be merry, for thou shalt shalt be such as this when thou art dead. Thus they do at their carousels. So carousel is a drunken revelry. So when the rich would finish eating and they're now about to party, um, they would a servant would go around with this wooden figure and it would be painted and carved and it would it would be made to look like a corpse. They would pass it around. It's like you need to party today because tomorrow you're going to look like that. That quote, "Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die," that quote is actually directly taken from Isaiah twenty two thirteen. And this was a verse explaining the apostasy and the rebellion of Israel. In the very next verse, after 13, God responds, Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. And the rest of the chapter goes on with the Lord explaining how he will turn their pomp into shame. Look, if there was no resurrection, we would have nowhere to turn to but to gratify our appetites. And if that's the case, if appetite is all you have left, because there's no resurrection, if appetite is all you have left, then that itself is the beginning of hell. Is it not? There's a Greek myth. There's another Greek myth about... um, Erisichthon. And Erisichthon was a guy who, he was the king, but he was so greedy. He became cursed and he had this insatiable appetite. Some of you may know this is a very popular myth. And then he would eat and eat and eat only to have his hunger grow and never be satisfied. Then he would sell all, he's the richest man, he's the king. He would sell all his possessions to get more food His hunger would only grow, and then he would end up even selling his own daughter. But no amount of food was enough, so in abject poverty he's left, and in abject poverty he eats himself. We are witnessing a sinful nation, a sinful world, consuming itself today. Verse 33, Do not be deceived bad company ruins good morals paul then you're like wow he's he's quoting a lot of greek literature but paul here himself quotes greek literature so the third greek literature that's quoted is by paul himself and he's quoting a proverb from menander's comedy thais and this is the proverb bad company ruins good morals do not be deceived that's a present tense imperative don't be fooled then you see the word bad company. Company is from the word hamalia. Hamalia means association. It's also used in the Septuagint. And so hamalia is, this is the only time hamalia comes out in the New Testament, but in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see it come out twice. And we see it used in Exodus 21:10. And Hamalia is referenced to use in, in, in use of sexual intercourse or conjugal rites. And then it's used once more in Proverbs 7.21, where it's translated as seductive speech. So Hamilia is where we also get the word homily, and you may be familiar with the term because it references speeches, and in particular, religious speeches. So in the Greek, Hamalia has undertones of all these things that I just mentioned. It may seem broad, but it has undertones of all these things. So we can read this line as Don't be deceived. Bad associations ruin good morals. Bad teachings ruin good morals. Bad theology ruins good morals. I'm going to just go the two main thoughts bad theology and bad associations. Some of you have wondered why theology is so important to us. Well, here's one. Bad theology corrupts the soul. People live their theology. Your actions are reflective of what you believe about God. A.W. Tozer will write that everything we do in some way reflects our perception of God. If you have bad theology, you will reflect a bad God who is no God at all. And it's vital that we strive for, pray for, and run towards good theology. There is no maturation without theological study. And I'm not saying everyone needs to study and parse Greek. However, however, everyone is a theologian. Because every Christian thinks on the character of God. Will this make him happy? Will this make him sad? Will this make him angry? And every Christian thinks on the way of salvation. What must I do to be saved? How do I work out my salvation in fear and trembling? And every Christian thinks on the sovereignty of God. What matters are entirely in God's hands, and what are our responsibilities that he's given to me? We can go on even further to say that every human, then, is a theologian. Every person thinks on who God is, even if it's to deny him. In Romans 1.20, it says, No one, no one will be excused because everyone knows what can be known about God because it's made plain to them. Some of you are reading more and more books on history, which is great. There's some studies out there in this church that you could get involved with, which I like. One of those books that we've recommended is by Carl Truman, The Triumph of the Modern Self. And in that book, he goes on to list all the historical thinkers from the Enlightenment to the current modern day. And one thing, if you've read this book or you're reading this book, one thing that you may notice is that every thinker from Rousseau to Marx, to Freud, to Darwin, to even modern thinkers like the feminist Simone de Beauvoir, is that they wanted to live life as they saw fit. And they knew, they knew of, and they purposefully went against the Christian faith. They would have loved nothing more than to tear down Christian morals and values. But the scriptures remind us early on to not be deceived. Bad theology, bad teaching, bad instruction ruin good morals. And the second part is bad associations. How important is this? Well, the book of Psalms, bad associations, bad company, the people that you keep around you. How important is that? The literally the book of Psalms opens with this line Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's how important it is. In Proverbs 7, Solomon talks about how he's looking out his window in his lattice, and he notices this simpleton, this foolish youth. And he notices this youth is walking down the street corner where everyone knows this is where the adulteress lives. This is where the prostitute lives. And behold, in verse 10, the woman comes out dressed as a prostitute. Wily of heart, it says in verse 10. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. And this is what the next verse is saying. With much seductive speech, homilia, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him His life. Who you spend time with, who you are intimate with, all these things are incredibly important. Do not be deceived. Bad associations ruin good morals. Bad associations will cost you your life. Verse 34: Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Bad theology and bad associations will eventually cost you your life. So wake up from your drunken stupor. Wake up from your drunken stupor. It's all one word, and it means, it's all one word in the Greek, it means to sober up. Sober up. You've seen enough movies now. To know that it's the drunken friend who can't sober up in time that will get run over by the train or eaten by monsters. The zombies are gonna get them, taken by aliens, whatever it is, right? So, that sober up quick. Everything in the world tells you to sober up quick, but Paul is telling you here sober up quick because this is your life, this is your soul at stake. Come to your senses. There is a resurrection. There is a resurrection. That means what you do now, what you do right now, carries on through eternity. Resurrection means that what you do now carries on through eternity. And knowing this then, would you willingly sin? If you are and if you have, don't you see that you're still in this drunken stupor? And some of you, Paul says, do not have the knowledge of God. Don't be fooled. Some of us here aren't Christians. Imagine the shameful condition the Corinthians were in because the resurrection is a reality. Because Christ lives, we will live as well. That's what we can hold on to. That's the hope of the witnesses that we have been surrounded by. That's why even now we can suffer and even die. That's why we strive to be mature and to be sanctified because what we do now will produce an eternal fruit, an eternal reward in heaven. I've been saying this to people frequently, when it's whether it's personally or corporately, and I ask people, what's your goal? What's your goal? When you ask me for counseling, One of the first things I ask you too is, what's your goal? Because if you understand the goal, you can keep up. If you recognize what's at stake, if you recognize now what's at stake, what would you not give up? What would you then hold on to? Don't be deceived. Anything less than the true Christ of the scriptures is a sham. It's counterfeit let go of your shameful conduct, let go of your sin, hold on to Christ. Grab hold of sanctification and holy living and run to the eternal prize. Fight. Fight so that one day you can hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's why we fight. Let's pray. Lord, there are difficult things in this world that we witness and perhaps even that we go through ourselves, but we don't do this for naught. We do this because we are looking to you, our faithful God. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would be with us, that we would be able to run this race that you have called us to run, fight the good fight of faith that you have called us to fight, that we will not be deceived, that we will hold on to the resurrection that is assured to us in the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits of our resurrection. We thank you so much for giving us what we have now, and Lord God, we ask, we can, we ask so that we can live uh, this sanctified life, that you would give us the strength of your Holy Spirit. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on the word that we've been given, on the hope that we have in Christ, that we can hold on to the resurrection and run this race. What is keeping you? The scriptures tell us to repent from those things. Repent and be baptized. Look to the eternal life that christ offers repent and be baptized turn from your sin look to christ let's pray